Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, one of the questions I get asked regularly is when am I going to do a proper B2B episode? It turns out a lot of you out there want to find out how B2B works and how you can be more successful in B2B. This has to be the episode for you because I'm catching up with Colin Fleming, who is the EVP for brand marketing at Salesforce. If you didn't know, Salesforce are the third biggest tech company in the world, turning over an incredible $40 billion a year. So if anyone can tell us about how B2B marketing works, it must be the people that make the software that drive most people's B2B. Colin, if you didn't know, was a former racing driver and is now heading up brand marketing and has been for the last 13 years at Salesforce. Now, he has got some incredible stories and some amazing experience to share. This episode is packed with B2B gold. I know you're going to love it. Now, I'm joined by Colin Fleming, who runs the brand for Salesforce. And we are in Salesforce Tower in San Francisco with some pretty amazing views. How many floors have we got here? 61. Yeah. 61. And you got to go to the 61st. I did. So, and yeah, I so. can confirm the views are spectacular. <laughs> we rolled out the red carpet. San Francisco, a beautiful day. Today. Is there something about is, is Salesforce like towers? Is, it, is there something in the tower? It's idea? a bit in our DNA. We have Salesforce towers in about six cities around the world. Yes. And uh, yeah. It's a fun. thing. It's a thing. Well, it it's a it's thing, very yeah. impressive as well. Um, well, we're going to get into Salesforce. Let's talk about it and marketing and, and all that sort of thing. But let's start at the beginning because you've got a rather unusual entry into, into your career because you started life as a racing driver. It's a nonlinear career journey, that's for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you talk about squiggly career. That's quite a squiggle from, <laughs> from the pit stop to the... Uh, Indeed, you know, yeah. Indeed. You know, to, to the marketing suite. But tell us about your, a little bit about your career and how you got into motorsport and uh, yeah. what, what are the highs and lows of, of, of doing something as extreme as that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, from a very young age, I was hooked on Formula One. That's uh, as a born and raised in California. Uh, instead of driving around in circles like we do in the US here, I wanted to go not drive around in circles. So uh, about 13, I moved to Europe it's racing go-karts. Turned out I was uh, quite good at it. I uh, was picked up by Red Bull at a young age and uh, got a chance to be Red Bull's Formula One test driver. I raced in Formula Three, Formula Two, um, Formula Renault and things like that. And uh, yeah, it was a one, wonderful experience. I mean, got to do what I had always searched at for doing. Uh, this kid called Sebastian Vettel came along, though, and they picked him over me. Oh, which no. Is, it's a bit that, rough in hindsight. Four yeah. world championships later, they probably made the right call. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I took everything that I had learned in motorsports, which, of course, yeah, the fast driving, which is always the thing that people think about. But uh, as, a, as an athlete, in that sense, you're spending so much time, more time, actually, raising personal sponsorship. I was in front of CMOs at the age of 13. Really? Raising oh, over wow. $15 million in personal sponsorship. Yeah. So uh, for me, like the idea of the shift to marketing was sort of a very familiar one. Yeah. And so 2008, I sort of made the kind of shift away from motorsports and said, look, give it a good go. Decided I was going to go try something else and um, took the skills that I had learned into what is now a, a pretty successful marketing career. Wow. Now, it, now from the outside, it, it looks like all glamour, right? Because I guess what you see, you see the champagne, you see the, you know, you see the action. Presumably, it's quite hard work to get to that kind of, you know. Oh, I mean, massive. Uh, of course, it's hard work. I think, uh, you know, anytime you're operating at that such a, f- a small percentage of people that get access to something, you're up against, of course, the world's best. The hard work, the dedication, the attention to detail, those things are so, so, so important. Of course, there's a lot of luck involved too, as with anything, right? And that's like not discussed much when it comes to athletes. I so much of just being in the right place in the right time. I was so fortunate to be involved with Red Bull and some of the awesome opportunities I had. Uh, but you learn a lot along the way. And so much of those skills have been, I mean, directly translatable into a career. And I think that um, when people see my career path, they're like, those are two wildly different worlds. But 
to me, there's so many similarities and that's where I've really tried to focus my energy. So tell me what would be the biggest things you've taken from that world of motorsport into, into your day job today? <laughs> I mean, dealing in a high-stress environment at Salesforce is a, is a good skill to have. Uh, but no, all kidding aside, I mean, resilience is super important. You know, you want... Uh, to be able to pick yourself off of the ground and continue to focus. Um, you know, a characteristic of any athlete is attention to detail and dedication. And anybody that's operated at that finite amount of that last 1% knows what dedication and hard work looks like. And I think, you know, not only have oh, I've been able to channel that from my career in the in prior, but also we have several uh, former athletes in the company. It's just amazing. Not that we seek it out necessarily, but um, you know, I think uh, you know another individual you should have on your podcast, Nick Drake, uh, was at Google, uh, former professional rugby player. This is amazing, and how those translatable skills uh, really really apply. And um, I think at this point we're just having fun with it. Yeah, it's true though because when we think about business, we think about the sort of technical skills and how smart you are and that sort of thing. Yeah. But actually, sheer hard work is a huge component, isn't it? You know, it doesn't matter how talented you are unless you apply it. And work really hard. It's not. Gonna, I will take work. hard work and dedication over an Ivy League education yeah. every single 100%. time. I mean, it's just unbelievable to see. And you know, and you know, ideally you have both, don't you? But I think that uh, that passion that comes with motorsports or any type of you know special scenario, there, passion. It's my number one personal core value. Um, it's really important to really be able to kind of pour yourself into something. And, you know, for the last nearly 13 years, I've poured a sort of poured my heart and soul into Salesforce. And, you know, I think that that's been a, a really fun experience. Now, we're going to come back to Formula One, aren't we, in, in a little while, because uh, <laughs> I think the, we might the go circle there, yeah. has been closed rather neatly, isn't it, in your career, <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is a fascinating kind of uh, uh, turn of events. But but let's start at the beginning of your journey 13 years ago. So what what, what was sales, Salesforce like when you started compared to today? Because, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying you're the third biggest software company in yeah. the world now, which is incredible to think. We but weren't what at was the end it of like 2010, 13 no. years ago? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, similarities in terms of what it is today in terms of the values we exhibit and things that you'll see. But, you know, at that point in time, we were not a global leader in software. We were a scrappy, you know, probably past the startup phase. We were something like 3,000 employees. Um, but, uh, you know, it had a point of view. It had a personality. And that's what really drew me to the company. It's like it was different. And I think that that's really what draw, drew me to it. It's like I can, coming from Red Bull, which is obviously a very unique company in and of itself, it really drew me the, per, the personality of the organization. And so I joined in product marketing. It was a really easy thing to do because it was a world-class product marketing company already. And uh, God, it's amazing to think 13 years later in the journey we've built, we're now nearly an 80,000 person company, nearly 40 billion in revenue. And so it's been amazing to see that journey uh, while still staying true. I think that's really important. And if you look at our brand today, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that personality, that spirit, that passion, that uniqueness, the differentiation that exhibits from the company, you can draw a direct parallel to back when I joined and before then. And I think that's something that um, we hold ourselves accountable to, I think. You know, we're a big believer in tell the story that only you can tell and big believer in we don't want to become the Oracle, the Microsoft, or the SAP. We want to be our own selves. And I think that that's uh Well, those we places are taken, of. so you might as well... Exactly, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Take, Why not exactly. be Salesforce? Right? Yeah, so. exactly. No, it makes a lot of sense. Now, if I if I were to pick the number one request I get on this podcast, by far, is to talk about B2B. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's funny, actually, but but we and I were chatting earlier as well. There's some, Why does B2B feel like a second-class kind of role to B2C? Because everyone wants to scramble to B2C roles. Yeah. But actually, B2B, in terms of the influence and, and the investment, and, you know, it can be just as exciting. So why, why does B2B have this sort of slightly apologetic 
yeah. feel to it. It's not even from the outside in. It's also from the inside. Yes, you see, yeah, like, yeah. for some reason, B2B marketers in their heads have decided that our bar can be lower than a B2C company. Like, frankly, we've just called BS on that. Yeah. Like, why? Yeah. And, you know, the same principles when you're buying a software product or a B2B scenario are the same when you buy a new pair of shoes, right? You're thinking about, is the quality there? Can I trust this brand? Is the personality, are the values aligned? Is the service appropriate? Like all those things are directly relatable on either end, B2B and B2C. But for some reason, we've decided that B2B has to be about data sheets and white papers and boring forms in front of everything. I think we're just, we're at this new kind of renaissance of B2C or B2B now that is unapologetic about it and yeah. just saying we can compete, you know, in Can Lion, we can have work that operates at that altitude and that quality. We can we can do Super Bowl spots. We can do big uh, brand activations that have personality forward and a point of view. And I think that's what I love about this kind of like renaissance we find ourselves in is that apology is no longer accepted, or at least we don't accept it. And I think that uh, that's really unleashed a ton of creativity. The amount of creatives that we've been able to attract from B2C talent B2C organizations is unbelievable. And so I think it's, we're starting to see this really take off uh, in effect. And I think that that's, um, hopefully we're just getting started because I think it's a ton of fun. I'd totally agree. And and also the, the other thing that people forget is the transaction values in B2B are huge as well, right? So, you know, we're not, we're not selling trainers, you know, on the high street, we're selling some complicated high end, yeah. you know, highly involved, highly engaged purchase decisions, aren't they? So make a not difference. only are they more complicated, but longer in duration too. Yeah. So, you know, average deal cycle in the enterprise and a company like Salesforce is more than a year. And so think about the touch points you have with a, with a purchaser or with a buying committee and how those all have to be connected and thoughtful and has to be journey laid out. And, and so, um, you know, the principles are the same, but you could argue more complex than maybe a set of trainers, let's say. I think that's fascinating. And that's where technology comes into play and thoughtful differentiation comes into play. And I think that that's really why uh, B2B really strikes me so, so, so nicely. Now, I, I thought, you know, we're here in Salesforce, you know, probably the most successful B2B, you know, business on, on earth at the moment, right? So you must have a few secrets to how B2B works. So I, I thought I'd try and uh, extract as much insight into how, how, how the world of B2B works as possible. But let's start with the data, because I think there's some, there's some really interesting data points, aren't there, about how business, how B2B makes decisions get made, right? And I know we were chatting about the, the 95.5 rule. So talk to me a bit about that, because that has quite a profound impact, doesn't it, on how you might look at where you spend your money, you know, what kind of activity you do and the balance between, you know, long and short as, as, as we say. It's the it's one of the most fundamental, like perplexing things I see in marketing. When I see so many of my peers or other B2B organizations spend an inordinate amount of their budget on the final step of the funnel. Like I've got to convert, I've got to convert and I've got to get my last touch attribution on this final data sheet that mattered. People don't buy products on data sheets. That does not work. And in fact, there's this amazing uh, research from, I think it's Ehrenberg Bass Institute as well as the LinkedIn B2B Institute that says something to the effect of, more than 80% of a purchasing journey happens on that first thought. If you're not part of that initial consideration set, you're not going to get bought. It doesn't matter how much money you throw in SEM ads or data sheets or anything like that. And so for me, that's been this unbelievable eye-opening experience. And, you know, we were talking earlier, I'm the only brand marketing leader that Salesforce has ever had, not because I'm a dinosaur and I've been here forever, because we didn't think about brand marketing. That wasn't a facet of our marketing organization. We did a lot of down funnel product marketing and made a big business off of it. But we've started to open our eyes towards that 95.5 rule that there's a whole world that we weren't considering. And so how do we think about doing 
longer term, more thoughtful marketing that wins the hearts and minds that make sure that our situational awareness is there so that we're, when somebody thinks about Salesforce or the 33 category entry points we were discussing and when people think about our types of technology, we're the first company that comes to mind. That is my ultimate KPI. And that is where I spend the majority of my budget is making sure that when they think of those 33 points, we're the company. And so we do more than most. I would would always want it to be a bigger percentage of overall budget, but we do more than most on a top funnel, winning the hearts and minds, thinking about that 95-5 rule. And, um, you know, I think we've been broadly regarded for that and awarded for that work. Um, and yet I still feel like we're just getting started. Yeah. No, I think definitely. I mean, if I look at the system on database and look at the kind of advertising that B2B does, it's yeah. quite it's quite shocking. So uh, B2C, we, we would say about half of all ads that we measure have no impact on the long-term health of the brand, right? Which is the old adage, you know. In B2B, that's 80%. So four in every five B2B ads that there get is, made, yeah. we measure, have no response on the audience at all and don't change the long-term fortunes of the brand. So, and yet the attribution model says that that final 20% is worth investing X percent yeah, of your budget. Yeah. But that's marketing to an attribution model. And I think that's the biggest flaw I see people in large B2B organizations is they're focused on marketing to a 90-day attribution model. Mm. That's not how people buy. Mm. People don't, Attribution models do not buy products. Humans do, and yeah. why not market to them? It's much better. Yeah, you're right. You made a good point there about the 90 days because you know the, the 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 window within which you measure your performance makes an incredible difference, doesn't it? Yeah. But you just said about uh, you might take a year to get an enterprise. I think 465 board. days if you look at like our insurance business is the average deal. Cycle. And would that be from the first engagement to Correct. signing up, presumably? Yeah. And, and the engagements are and that's probably later. That's than, late. About to exactly. point about 80 percent make a decision before. Exactly. So that's probably a much longer cycle. Isn't it's it? just amazing. And yeah. when you look at that, it becomes so obvious. And yet, when I speak to my peers or speak to others in B two B. It's just a heightened sense of consciousness. And I think there's so many companies that just think about that, got to make the quarter, got to make the month mentality. And, you know, I live in that too. We have a, we've got to make the month. We are a public company. We got to be thinking about that all the time, but we have to realize that the job to be done can happen earlier. It can happen at a different altitude. And I think once we started kind of internalize that, you know, that data has helped me win arguments with the board about where to invest with our CEO. And I think those are really, really important things, kind of freeing environments that I think hopefully through folks like the B2B Institute and, you know, maybe from people, listeners of this podcast, we can start to open our eyes a little yeah, bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've learned this massively in my role. Uh, so I've been doing B2B role for four years now before all B2C. And I've been blown away by the power of doing the brand building work because it doesn't necessarily pay off straight away but it has this cumulative effect that it the return just gets better and better and better so your activation just works harder and harder and harder because you've got this halo but you have to commit to it and you have to be consistent and keep on you know keep on delivering it but the the payback's enormous we did a cohort analysis looking at um people that were exposed to brand and demand advertisements versus just demand and the brand ad the dual was 6x higher than just solely activation ads so i mean Again, that might not show up in an attribution model because the demand ad is going to get all the last click value, but it starts to show you there's there's a bigger story than these attribution models, and we have our own attribution model. We're building it. We're learning it. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a human capacity that I think we all need to be reminded of occasionally, and that's important. 100%. Now, um, one of the other things that stands out about what you do at Salesforce is your investment in kind of distinctive brand assets, going back to sort of another Ehrenberg Bass sort of, you know, staple. Um, and you've done it very, very well. It's quite rare in B2B to see kind of an investment in, you know, you know your logo and the cloud and the, way, you know, the font and the characters that you've evolved over time and, and kind of introduced. Was that conscious? Has that always been the case or is it something you've, you've discovered 
uh, on your journey? It's been a journey, I would say. We started there. We started with a very, our first advertisement was a jet fighter shooting down a biplane, that biplane being Oracle or Siebel at the time. And so we've always had a personality and a um, spirit to the Salesforce. Um, but about 10 years in, when we started selling to the large organizations and we started being more of an enterprise-focused company, we started to become those enterprise-focused companies. We lost the personality. We lost the spirit. We started to look like every other company. There was a, I remember a reckoning very vividly actually inside the company where we just kind of looked at ourselves and we're like, you could put any B2B company's logo on that presentation or whatever it was and it would hold up. And that was a moment in time for us where like, we have to rethink this. And so we kind of channeled ourselves and I was fortunate to enter the creative team at that fun- at that point in time. And the brief to me was bring back our soul. And you couldn't bring back what it was in 1999 because the world has moved on and things like this. And so we sort of turned to our community actually. And we have a you know very robust community that has created this kind of environment that we find ourselves in. We call Trailhead, incredible character set. Um, We call Astro and Friends, Astro being our main character, a mascot, if you will. And it's just been amazing to see the journey that we've been on with there from a, well, why the hell are they doing that? To now seeing study from, you know, LinkedIn B2B Institute and Aaron Bay saying that these distinctive assets are immensely valuable. And, you know, a great example of this, like, what does the Geico Gecko have anything to do with insurance? It doesn't. It creates an association. It creates a playfulness. And, you know, that was a multi-year journey inside the organization to many people walking into Bank of America or these large organizations going, why are there goats and bears and <laughs> astros on my thing uh, to now being probably the most distinctive yeah. brand in B2B, I would argue. And um, you'd have to rip it from the cold dead hands of anybody in the company. We just love it. We the, the culture has admired it, uh, welcomed it, um, and I think that's really a positive. So it's not for everybody. Not everybody can adopt what we've been able to. We're fortunate to have a CEO who's a <laughs> larger-than-life personality that exudes this and really challenges us. And I have to say, when I look back at it after you know the time we've spent on it, it's been pretty amazing to see what we've accomplished. And We'll keep building it. I genuinely think this is almost marketing's best kept secret, actually, in terms of characters. I mean, I think if I I go back and put my client hat on again, I would have gone, why are we having these kind of cartoon, you know, childish characters sort of thing? Now that I understand a bit more of the science behind how advertising and brands work, I would start there. If I was building a business tomorrow, I'd start there because... You know, they, they can shop everywhere. You know, they, they immediately, you know, create positive associations. They make you stand out from competition. Because, of course, in, you know, in any business, you're thinking about you. But when you go out and realize the, the sheer number of software companies that are out there, all with the same blue logo, all that say the same things, you know, yeah. and you've got something that absolutely stands out. I mean, well, I, And the best part about it was it wasn't us sitting around a boardroom drawing these characters. It came from our community. We did not design most of these characters. They came from the community. And so it's really, and, and each one of our characters has a role and they play a, they play a role in there. It's like each character represents a member or a group of our ecosystem within the business. And so I think uh, they're theirs. They're not ours. And it really has helped build like a connection to the organization. And so, yeah, advertising is there, but also the community side is there and we see sort of benefits all around. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because, you know, you, you build software that help people talk to their customers, right? So yeah. you, 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 it's good to hear that you're also doing yes. that. <laughs> what a it's concept, reassuring, right? Yes. You know, what a concept. There you go. Not just selling it, actually doing it. <laughs> um, now, another thing that might appear a little bit surprising when we, as we're talking about B2B is doing a Super Bowl ad. Was how did that come about? Because was it a big sale? To go, I know what we're going to go on the biggest stage, you know, biggest advertising stage uh, with a B two B brand. Yeah, and, and it was a tough one internally because uh, 2011 we did a Super Bowl ad. Um, 
it did not go very well for us, let's just say. Um, and uh, so it's sort of a, it was like, oh, we'll never do that again. Okay. And so the, we had to overcome quite a lot. Um, but I will tell you, we did not design said ad with the intent of being a Super Bowl ad. We built it because we felt the message was right. And then we were like, wow, this is a really powerful message. We put it on the Super Now just Bowl. describe it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. Just, just describe the ad because sure. it is quite powerful. Yeah. It is. So this was 2020, right mm-hmm. before the pandemic, um, which was a very different period of time, of course. And we had just hired Matthew McConaughey, who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point here, as our brand sort of advisor. And uh, we were started thinking about what can differentiate Salesforce. And it was about values. And, you know, can we talk about or how our CRM is better than Microsoft's or somebody else's, sure, we can do that. Um, that's not really a Super Bowl ad. And so we thought about what are the differentiating factors? And this was a moment in time when Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and everybody's going to space. Yeah. That was that was the kind of thing, right? And yet we've got all these problems here in the U.S. Like we've got climate change, we've got all, you know, uh, a strife, economic or equality differences and whatnot. And we're like, well, why are we going up there instead of focusing so on going here? down here? Yeah. 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 And it was a very simple idea. Yeah. And so we called it the new frontier. The new frontier mm-hmm. isn't up there, it's down here. And so we really tried to just turn CEO and his and executives' attentions to the problems we have here and to focus our energy as businesses on being a platform for change. And that's one of our key uh, values as a company is, is our business can be the ultimate platform for change. And uh, so it was just a very simple idea that we came to life with a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we we're broadly regarded for the ad and we we're really proud of it. Now, a lot of brands would say, oh, we've got this celebrity as our brand ambassador, right? And, and like, you know, you see a new car launch and it was in collaboration with, you know, somebody and you just think yeah. they didn't even touch the paintwork, you know, sort of thing. Of but, but actually, Matthew McConaughey does have an involvement in the business, he does, doesn't yeah. he? So how, how does that work? Yeah, we're perfectly, he's not a brand ambassador, he's a brand advisor. And so mm-hmm. he is a true advisor. You know, he and I will sit down and talk about messaging direction and talk about, uh, you know, the latest research with our brand, what's working, what's not, what's happening in the world. And so he and I, we just have a brand campaign we launched just a, a couple months ago around artificial intelligence. And it was fascinating, you know, at, in its infancy to sit down with somebody of his stature, an unbelievable connection to the consumer and to a personal individual to talk about what is happening in artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's so fascinating. I will bring the business perspective and I'll bring the research and I'll bring a lot of the work and he'll go so much with instinct and his unbelievable ability to connect with humans. And it feels like it works so beautifully. And so I love the opportunity to collaborate with him. He's brilliant. Um, he's as advertised, um, wicked, creative, uh, very smart, very in tune with the values of the company. The reason we chose Matthew is just we have such a strong values alignment. So it's been a ton of fun. We're just getting started with him, though. I think we're, uh, we have our newest campaign, Ask More of AI, Ask More of AI out. And uh, it's been really, really fun. So we'll keep going. I mean, I've been listening to his green lights and it's yeah. he, he's incredibly profound, isn't he? Very, very smart. But also his observation of the world is just fascinating. And that's not a book. That's just Matthew. That's who yeah. he is. Yeah. It's just, he, it's just, he just talks, doesn't he? And just all these profound thoughts and connections, the way he joins things together. It's just yeah. really, I can, I can see why. He's a special one for I can sure. see why it'd make you kind of think and yeah. challenge yourselves differently. Yeah. He makes me uncomfortable, which is, I think is the point. Yeah. You know, I've been leading this brand organization coming on 10 years now. And so... Um, it helps me get outside the comfort zone a little bit and challenges are to push our brain in another way. And I think that it would have been easy for us to go down the path of artificial intelligence where everybody else is, which is like bleeding innovation yeah. and things like this. But we chose to go the other way, which is about highlighting how trust is so important and really thinking about the questions we should be asking of AI 
And, you know, a lot of that came from him and to his credit. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think as, as, you know, humanity is looking at AI pretty much as an ex- existential threat, isn't it? You know, but, but flipping that to go, well, what can AI, you know, do for us positively and how can it make positive change in the world? I mean, we looked at it in the general, like the, the, uh, the, the brief was there's a gold rush mentality happening right now. And all those same, same policies, same things are exhibiting themselves, like blight and disregard for security and privacy of our data, not looking about what it means to the broader perspective. We're just chasing something. And we, we are a firm believer in AI. I mean, we've been at this business for 10 years and we were one of the pioneers of AI and enterprise, but we think we can do it in a trusted way and we can do it with, in ways that don't put us at odds with our customers, for example. And I think that's really important for us. Do you think AI will make humans extinct? No. Uh, I think I think there's a big empowerment push here, but yeah. I think there's some things. I mean, we've all seen the movie Terminator. Yeah. We know what happens. <laughs> uh, well, everyone's thinking, isn't yeah. It? I mean, Hang everybody's on. going there for sure, and we yeah. should we should look at it. Yeah. I mean, for but, sure. Well, Elon didn't didn't he say suggest like we should pause for six months and have a conversation? I don't know if we want to go to Elon at the moment, <laughs> but, but you know. uh, what I will say is there are real things we have to be conscious of, and really thinking about are we putting our values in front of this? And anytime you see companies, we've seen this with every revolution, whether it be social or mobile. There's great examples of companies that have put growth or technology innovation in front of trust or in front of something else. And I think that's when we get into trouble. And our five core values as a company are trust, customer success, innovation, equality, and sustainability. And anytime we see those get out of order in terms of priority, we kind of catch ourselves to say trust has to be the number one thing. And so we've chosen thoughtfully, not just with our marketing messaging, but also with our product to put trust first. And I think that's... um, unique in the marketplace right now? Well, it's very profound at the moment. I mean, like, you couldn't want for more trust at the moment, you know, with, with you know, the way social media is going and right. world <laughs> events and everything else. I mean, that's pretty... And we're broadly regarded powerful. as one of the most trusted yeah. companies in the world. I mean, people invest their most sensitive data, their customer data mm-hmm. with Salesforce globally. And so it's important for us to make sure we not only maintain that trust, yeah. but also earn it in this new environment. And so uh, think about how we innovate how we market, how we message, it's um, it's got to be with values first. It yeah, always should be. Definitely. And one of the other things that always comes to mind when I think about Salesforce is Dreamforce, of course. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, you know, there aren't that many kind of B2B events that sort of like spill over into sort of like national news, right? I mean, it's just like, and it's, and, and, and the thing, yeah, I've never been, but um, the thing that I observe from the outside is the energy and the engagement levels just seem incredible. And it, and, and it gets talked about way beyond just a kind of internal kind of you know, conference that you might have. What is it about Dreamforce then? Or, or, or what have you created or how do you create something that has kind of had that much impact? Well, we need to get you next year. That's important. Well, we'll thank make you. sure you <laughs> my invitation to come for sure. You know, it started out as a very modest uh, user conference. It was a user conference. I think we had 1,200 people at the first one in 2004. This was just our 21st one, I believe it was. And so, you know, it started out as a basic user conference. But as it grew, we chose to not make it scale blindly, but scale in terms of depth and the nuance within it. And so how do we add more insight around culture, around leadership, around sustainability, around equality, these things? And that's been really fascinating for us, for sure. So who, who, who well, firstly, two questions, right? Who gets to go and also who gets invited to speak? What, what, what have been your favorite kind of moments or speakers that you've had in, uh, in Dreamforce? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. And and it's actually not the big headliners that I'm so passionate about at Dreamforce. It's the little nuanced topics that, you know, really catch the minds. You know, we have, it's a it's known for its size. I mean, there's been years we've communicated with 170,000 people at Dreamforce. It's a massive 
cultural event for us. And we're really proud of that. And it comes from that breadth and depth of content we bring to life. And there's something for everybody, right? Um, and we usually theme the day. So every day has a bit of a nuance. And one day we'll be all about deep innovation. One day it'll be all about leadership. The other day it'll be about wellness, for example. And so you can kind of go on this really big life journey, actually, in the context of Dreamforce and really come back with a fresh perspective. So I think that's number one is right, making sure we're throwing a myriad of things with you. I think that too many times you go to these user conferences and it's like, here's the new button. We put it right here. And you got to know how important that button is. Like we'll do a lot of that at Dreamforce. We have 1,500 sessions at Dreamforce and we talk a lot about where the buttons are. But we also try to mix it with interesting things. And, um, you know, this year was all about AI and we brought not just about technology advancement, but the ethical considerations. We brought about leadership. We brought about public policy. And so, you know, we've had... Uh, world leaders. We've had Barack Obama. We've had Michelle Obama there. We've had uh, Republican congressmen and Republican senators this year. We try to bring a balance of perspectives. Tons of media journalists, of course. Jane Goodall was there this year. She might have, she might be my favorite. I just love Jane Goodall. Yeah. We had this really interesting panel. This might be my favorite panel ever. We had Jane Goodall, Rain Wilson, yeah. and Dave Matthews on one panel, and it was all around sustainability. Wicked good. I mean, just such different life perspectives around one common topic. And so that's just one example of how Dreamforce comes to life. And the really value for the attendee is to really expand their brain a little bit. Uh, we call it our family reunion. We don't call it an event. We call it the Salesforce family reunion. And it truly is that. You see people walk around smiling, connecting, uh, learning, having fun, giving back. And I think that's really the magic sauce of Dreamforce. And uh, every year we try to find a way to bring a new layer, a new dimension to it. And I think uh, somehow, 21 years on, we still find a way to do that. But I, but I, think you, I think you've tapped into one of the most fundamental points about B2B marketing, which everybody forgets, is that you, you, what you should be doing is trying to add value to your customer, not sell them your product. But it's amazing. One, one of the things I, you know, since I've moved into B2B is just ask people to, you know, show me your sales presentation. And it will be, this is us, right? And it literally, and, and as, as, as a client, I remember like, well, do you even know what I need, you know? And so one of the things I've been trying to do in kind of my role is if we can add enormous value to our customers, they might just buy us, you know, at some point in the future, but they'll certainly remember us who we are. But if we just go and go, oh, can I, you know, can I tell you about what we do? And, um, one little example is I remember uh, meeting Andrew Robertson, who's the he's the CEO of BBDO, yeah. and um, had half an hour with him, and and we'd just done some work on diversity. It's called Feeling Seen, and what we'd done is we'd under we, we'd basically done a massive test looking at how different groups feel when they see themselves in advertising. Yeah and how messages connect with different audiences. And so what it worked out is sort of advice for people to how to get it right. You know, because it's one of those things that people worry about, you know, it's like, if I get it wrong, I don't, you know, I don't want to offend a whole group. And equally, the, you know, the benefit of getting it right is, is high. And it's really interesting because I presented this to him for half an hour. And, and he, at the end, he said a really interesting thing. He said, do you know what? If you had said to me, you were going to go and present system one for half an hour, I wouldn't have turned up. Right. But you've actually addressed a very big concern of mine and you've taught me something that I really wanted to know about and you've given me a whole lot of value. I'm going to buy you anyway. <laughs> you know, it was like, but we forget that, don't we? Because you can imagine like putting on a conference, we're going to tell you about the buttons and we're going to. Because you know, we're marketing the attribution models. I know, exactly. Right? Yeah. The and because in our head, the buttons are the biggest thing, right? And actually, we've got to think, right. well, what do our audience care about? Yeah. And can we? do something about that yeah. and they'll get they'll get the buttons anyway and then the buttons are not that hard to figure out you know so that will come later sort of thing but i think that's one of the 
so many B2B businesses get that wrong. It's just like another email telling you about the new 15.2.0.5, you know, we've now, we've now upgraded our button, you know, sort of thing. Well, the biggest thing for us at Dreamforce is, you know, I mentioned the breadth and depth of content, but we'll debut and create about 30 different customer stories every year at Dreamforce. And what's fascinating is when the healthcare CEO comes to Dreamforce and I'm like, oh, I've got three healthcare stories you got to see. He's like, I don't want to see that. I want to see the retail story. I want to see the manufacturing story. I want to learn from others outside of my space and what they're doing. And you get this interesting smorgasbord of like interesting stories you can pull into a perspective. And what I'm most proud about is people walk away from Dreamforce with a list of to-dos. And it's usually innovation to-dos of like, I've got to think about this differently. I got to approach that differently. And by the way, once those things happen, they attach our products in their mind to it. And that's wonderful. That's great. We sell a lot of stuff at Dreamforce, but that's not the intent. We don't go there with a, a, a revenue goal. Well, it's actually 95, right? right. Isn't exactly. it? it? It's the 95, not the five. Exactly. In this case. I think the really interesting thing is, why do people go to conferences? Because I think, you know, when you put a conference on, you think, oh, they're there to come and listen to us. But it's things like they want to network. You know, they, they want to change a scene. They want to be inspired. They want to break. You know, th th there's so many needs there. And I think what's amazing about Dreamforce is what you put together is something that addresses why people want to be together. And, uh, you know, rather than get the hard stuff. We've studied this quite a lot. And we're... Well, you should have done it. It's I mean, been, it's like it's been said to, that yeah. Salesforce might just be an events company that happens yeah. to sell software on yes. the side because we, yeah. we take our events pretty yeah. seriously. <laughs> um, and there's four reasons people come to our events. They yeah. come to learn. And that's not just about our technology. They come to learn about rescaling and things like that. So they come to learn. They come to connect. And so that's the networking. And it's not just meeting new people, but it's also the family reunion aspect we saw. Uh, they come to have fun. And that's why these large concert uh, conferences have concerts and you know, slides and things like this. And they come to give back. And this is where a little bit of Salesforce magic comes in, where we'll do full volunteer days, we'll do philanthropy, we'll do sustainability efforts. And people get this, those four things coming together, or I think where there's this, a little bit of the Salesforce magic is, I think conferences do really great at some of those things, but not all at once. And I think that's... Um, when you boil it down all the research, it boils down to those four things. Hugely powerful. I remember very early in my career, actually, I, I wanted to go into innovation and, and kind of creating some challenger brands in this yeah. organization. And I, I read, read up some books on it and I put a big pitch to the company and ended up getting some funding. It's really super exciting. And I got to this point where I realized I don't know anyone else in the company that does what I do anymore, right? Because I'd built this thing and it was quite unique. And I suddenly had this real need to go out of the organization and network and meet people in other businesses in the same situation. And they felt just the same. They're also going, well, no one else is doing what I'm doing. And that's, that's what this does, isn't it? Is you get to meet people that are in the same situation, facing similar challenges, um, and you can kind of support and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, help each other out, which is super. We're all humans. We have to be inspired. That's why yeah. the movie industry exists. <laughs> yes. You know, but what's interesting about Salesforce is when I, when I get to that point, I need to be inspired or any of us need to be inspired. We don't go to competitive conferences. We go to Disneyland. We go to movies. We go to unique experiences that say, and again, back to that B2B versus B2C, the way that the human mind works is not different in B2B and B2C. It's the same. And so can you apply yourself to that same principle is where we find interest. But that's where creativity happens, right? So, you know, I, I mean, you know, all my ideas will come when I'm 
out on my bike trying to set a fastest time down course, a yeah. particular segment of the road you know, sort of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. you'll be doing stuff like that where I go oh yes there's the idea you know? I'm a big thinker in the shower too a lot like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, great yeah. ideas come in the shower yes. yeah <laughs> do, you, do you have like a, a, a setup at home for your racing cars you know like, yeah I was gonna say I, in my head you've got like you know you've got the whole thing going on at well that's funny when I do those things my mind shuts off like yes. I could do it for an hour and not tell you what I thought about yeah. same with running I'm a big runner yeah. and uh, yeah sometimes you got to turn the brain off for a bit which is important yeah, you do no it's, it's very refreshing well this does bring me full circle right and and because um the listeners and viewers will probably not be too surprised to hear that you're now back involved with formula one yeah aren't you in a professional capacity Funny so that, yeah. the world has kind of gone around in a full circle it now. Has, so, yeah. so tell me how well firstly why and you sure. know how you're how you're activating in formula one now well i think um you know i'm always in search of that situational awareness we talked about and one of the things that's really interesting about salesforce is you all, everybody on this uh, podcast, listening to this podcast, interacts with Salesforce every single day, but you would never know it because we're a behind-the-scenes technology, right? We have, you never see us, but hopefully we're doing a good job behind the scenes. And so one of the challenges for us is like, how do we think about closing that gap a little bit? How do we think about putting our brand in front of a broader audience? And Formula One, obviously, what we've seen with what Liberty Media has done and Drive to Survive with Netflix has just had this explosion in popularity. And um, there's this really interesting story that we kind of sold the deal internally, which is there's 500 million fans that follow Formula One. And it's a rabid fan base, and it's amazing to see what they've done. Less than 1% of them actually go to a Grand Prix. And so what happens with the other 99%? How is Formula One engaging with them and how the team's engaging with them? And frankly, that's where we come in. And so we were able to build this incredible story and implement technology to help Formula One Think about that 99%. Think about that 499 million other fans and how do we drive better personalization, better experiences, really reinvent the fan experience. Um, and Salesforce powers that for Formula One. And uh, it's pretty awesome to see. And so, yes, it is full circle. And I go back and I see some of my friends in the paddock and it's really enjoyable. But to really think about helping grow the sport that I love so much. And I'm still the kind of I'm still the guy 15 years on that wakes up at 430 in the morning in the U.S. to watch every practice and every Formula One qualifying and whatnot. So and my son is now involved in it, which is kind of fun to watch. Uh, but to now see it prosper and to help connect that fan journey is so really great experience. I love the fact that 13-year-old you was pitching CMOs to get a bit of sponsorship to yeah. get to the next level of, of and now racing. Just, it literally and now turned you're the guy me. with the yeah. money. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but, you know, it's it's uh, great. We do the same thing with the Olympics. We do some other, other sports as well. And it's just amazing to see when I look at fans mm. of any sport, they're just really passionate customers. And we are the customer company. So it's just like this natural connection for us. And, um, you know, we don't do a lot of sports marketing, but we try to do really thoughtful ones and ones that are high profile. And and I think the Formula One has really been really valuable for us. We're thrilled with the response. We're thrilled with what uh, Liberty Media and the Formula One group has done, too. I mean, what a world class. It's a master class in what they've done in building the fan base. And so hopefully we can continue. To grow. I like the fact you found a, an authentic role. For yeah. sale, you know, you haven't just put the logo on the car, right? Which is what most people seem to do. Yeah. We've actually found an authentic role that tells a story that your customers will be able to, you know, will be inspired by. I mean, marketing is storytelling. Yeah, it's not slapping our logo on stuff. And we could have done that ten years ago. We've been a large company for a long time, a long time now. But it only we needed to find that right angle. And it's similar with the Olympics. Uh, it's unbelievable to think about the fan base that the Olympics has, right? And so very similar narratives. And we just needed to find the narrative that made sense for us. And um, I think we've done that. Uh, and I think we're, you know, we're just getting started telling the story for sure. Well, the other, the other thing that I think people forget in B2B marketing is people in B2B do watch Formula One. 
yeah. and they do watch the Olympics and they do watch the World Cup. You know what I mean? Funny, it's, that it, did come up a lot when we thought about it, yes. <laughs> it's, it's funny, like somehow we think these <clears throat> people just go home and work and they have no yeah. lives and all they do is think, you know, look yeah. at spreadsheets and think the about buying things. The demographics are unbelievably aligned with ours. Totally, yeah. So, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, B2B buyers are humans. I, could, I mean, so I, I can't remember who um, someone was kind of um, challenging the podcast in terms of, well, you know, how big, how big value is it going to be? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just talking to those very influential, senior, wealthy <laughs> yeah. people that oversee big budgets and spend a lot of money and also do lots of other things as well in life, yeah. you know. So yeah. it's like, you know, who wouldn't want that audience? You know? It's amazing. And when you look at the demographics too, like Formula One is IT. It's IT. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Massive yes. IT heavy. Yes. And so like, oh, it yeah. turns out IT people buy a lot of yeah, software. Yeah, so yeah. Shocking that, yeah. Now, the other thing I imagine, uh, I, I'm going to hazard a guess here, that it, that it plays a role as well for your customers in terms of entertaining customers because you've got some, you've got somewhere to bring them to as well. It, do you use it in that capacity? Of to, course, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's three kind of there's three three capacities we use it in, of course. Uh, the trackside signage and branding and things like that, clearly we get a lot of exposure in that sense, and so that helps uh, with aided awareness for sure. Um, it doesn't help unaided awareness, which is really, really important. We want to close the gap in that situational awareness. So we do a lot of hospitality, uh, clearly. Um, and we'll bring, you know, high profile executives and fans to to the racetrack and give them unique, un, un, you know, unlived experience before. So that's been fun. You know, hot laps around the circuit, meet and greet with the drivers, garage, things like that. So really unique experience. But the third part is the most interesting part, which is the product storytelling and like taking people behind the scenes and showing how Formula One runs on Salesforce and showing how when they bought the tickets or when they opened the mobile application or when they visited FormulaOne.com or they watched online that that's happening through the power of Salesforce is an invaluable experience in terms of like applying it to their own organizations. And so the ability to tell that story at large, uh, not just with Formula One, but with McLaren is another partnership we have. Um, to think about the day-to-day operations. McLaren is the most popular sport or team in the world now in terms of um, the fan base. And so there's fun, fun stories to tell. And I think, as I mentioned, any B2B marketer, and I don't think we think about this enough, is a storytelling uh, role. Huge, yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're in the marketing operations team, you're in the finance team. If you're in marketing, you're a storyteller. And um, I don't think we focus on that enough as an, as an industry at large. Well, the other thing, because you know, anyone in a role is going to focus a lot on their own business and how things are done. But it's so inspiring to see, well, what if, what, how would a Formula One team address this problem I've got, right? And it's often when you go out of your kind of normal sphere that, that that's when you suddenly go, oh, yeah, that's how I'm going to solve that problem. Oh, yeah, because that's how they do it over there. You know, it's kind of like there's almost no problem that hasn't been solved by another category or another segment, right, that you can get inspired by. So that makes a difference. Um, let me finish on this question then. So if you were giving some advice to someone who's listening to this thinking, oh, I quite like the sound of what, what Colin's doing. Yeah. What would be your advice to kind of succeed in the kind of role you're doing or, or, or if you're maybe more junior to kind of get the sort of role that you've got? You know, look for inspiration outside of your world. I think um, outside of the, the obvious places, I think that that's when I look at successful marketers that I follow and admire or or within the organization, they always have such a unique perspective on things. So like find that story that only you can tell as an individual, as a personal brand, as a company, as a whatever, a group, whatever it may be, find that story and tell that story, perfect it, refine it, build it. And I think that that's, you know, go back to storytelling. And I think you tell it to humans, tell it story to humans, don't tell it to attribution models, don't tell it to anything, but those that are willing to listen. As in marketing, we talk about the points of differentiation and it's just as true for personal brand is it is why will someone remember you? What mm-hmm. will they remember you for? Yeah. And will you stand out amongst uh, all your yeah. investors? So. I mean, my whole organization is around building audience, 
moving those audience and finding unique and clever ways to activate them. That is something my entire organization wakes up and thinks about every single day. How do I grow the people that are watching us? How do I engage them in some capacity and move them into the next day and give them unique experiences? And if we do those things really, really well, you know, I think our technology, thankfully we're blessed to have a world-class product that can deliver a lot of uh, and solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. Amazing. Colin, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been an absolute me. blast. This has been thank fun, you. yeah. Thanks, appreciate Great. it. Great. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that. If you never want to miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, click on subscribe there too. If you want to follow me, you can do. I'm over at John Evans on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter as well at Uncensored CMO. Thanks again for listening and watching. I'll see you next time.